Welcome to a special edition of Focus in Sound, the podcast series from the Focus newsletter published by the Burroughs Welcome Fund. I'm your host, science writer Ernie Hood. In this special edition of Focus in Sound, we bring you a panel discussion on career development that took place at the fund's headquarters in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, on October 10, 2018, during the networking meeting for new awardees. The awardees were treated to the wisdom of four distinguished guests from different backgrounds and at different stages of their careers. Dr. Nancy Andrews is the Nanoline H. Duke Professor of Pediatrics and Dean Emeritus of the Duke University School of Medicine. Among her many achievements, she has been chair of the Burroughs Welcome Fund Board since 2015. Dr. Mary Mosedale is a research assistant professor in the Division of Pharmacotherapy and Experimental Therapeutics at the University of North Carolina Eshelman School of Pharmacy. She is the recipient of a Burroughs Welcome Fund Innovations in Regulatory Science Award. Dr. Fernando Pardo Manuel de Viena is chair of the Department of Genetics at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. As chair, he oversees the department's research enterprise, including multiple dedicated research centers. He is an international leader in the field of genetics. Dr. Rashid Badogeshin is a professor of pediatrics and professor in medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine. He is the principal investigator of a recently awarded Burroughs Welcome Fund Physician Scientist Institutional Award. We begin with a brief introduction by Burroughs Welcome Fund President Dr. John Burris. Then each of the four panelists will speak about their careers for a few moments, followed by questions from the event's attendees. I will voice the questions from the audience to enhance their audio quality. We hope you enjoy the discussion and find it of value wherever you find yourself in your career path. Dr. Burris. Today, uh, we're very excited to have four distinguished panelists who are going to provide advice from their perspectives on establishing your career, establishing your laboratory. Each of them comes from a slightly different perspective, and I think that will be helpful to you. Dr. Andrews. So in thinking about what to say today, and having done this, I don't know, three or four times, maybe more, before, uh, I wanted to choose a topic that uh, I thought probably wouldn't come up with the other speakers because they'll they'll be able to um, help you in in practical ways that I I may be a little too remote to help with. Um, I should say I, I maybe this is another disclosure. Uh, for ten years, I was the dean of the medical school at Duke, and so I uh, watched many new faculty members come in in that role, and and so I know something about it from that perspective. And years ago, starting my own lab. But I wanted to, to mention something that I, I think might otherwise be forgotten, but looking back at my own career was very important. And in fact, you're in being here kind of taking the advice I'm about to give you. And, and that is that in science, perhaps this is true in any field, networking is really important or building your network. And you do that in many ways. You do that by going to meetings like this, 
You may do it by becoming involved in a professional society that you work with. You do it by just getting to know other people at the institutions you pass through during your training and uh, as you start your career. I would say maybe the least effective way to do it is to go up to a famous speaker after he or she gives a talk and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, shake their hand, and, and that's it, because that's not really going to start a relationship. But looking back at my own career, the people who I met starting in medical school and graduate school, and then through different kinds of committees and organizations and travel to give talks at other institutions, the people I sat down with for half an hour when I was a visiting speaker who I thought were in a completely different field, end up being people who enriched my science in various ways, made it possible that when I needed to learn a new technique or find somebody who knew something about something I didn't know anything about, I could call on people from from that whole rich spectrum of connections that I developed over the years. So it's something that in a way you'll do passively, but I I just want to urge you to to value that because it makes a huge difference over time. I, I still think back to people I knew even as an undergraduate and they at the time, you know, we were students or they were faculty and I was a student And I didn't really think about it, but now being able to call them up and say, you know, I need to know something about malaria way outside my field, or we're trying to recruit somebody who is in your field, or whatever, it's made science a lot better to have that breadth. Sometimes it can mean going to a seminar in an area that's completely different from what you think about. And you might not even get to know a new person through that, but, but constantly stretching the way that you look at science, going outside of your own field, and developing what really turn out to be often lifelong connections is the the version of networking that I want to put in a plug for. I think it makes a huge difference. And you're already doing it, but but over time, do it a lot more. Hi, everyone. I'm Mary Mizdo. I'm a research assistant professor and assistant director of the Institute for Drug Safety Sciences at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. So I am uh, at the you know, very opposite end of the spectrum here in terms of uh, career experience as some of my more established colleagues on the panel. But I'm happy to share my experiences um, and my thoughts, and hopefully they'll be beneficial to you. So I'm a research faculty member in the School of Pharmacy. Um, it's a little bit of a different position than a tenure-track faculty, and I'm actually in the process now of trying to make that a transition from research faculty to tenure track. And, you know, I've taken a little bit of an alternative route to get there. I was actually a research investigator at a toxicology research institute uh, called the Hamner Institutes here in the Triangle area. And at the end of 2015, when uh, Hamner closed down, I actually transitioned with my whole group over to the School of Pharmacy to serve in this uh, research assistant professor role. And, uh, you know, I have to say it's been definitely a non-traditional route, but a great um, opportunity and great experience for me for many reasons. So serving in a a research faculty role has allowed me to uh, serve as a principal investigator for independent research projects to secure my own funding to apply for and obtain funding, um, many of the same types of funding opportunities as you can in a tenure track role. 
So I've been able to apply for and receive NIH grants, uh, industry contracts, and also private foundation funding. And I was a 2017 recipient of the Innovation and Regulatory Science Award. And so, of course, that's helped me bolster my CV, which is great as I prepare to make this transition into a tenure-track role. I've been able to lead research projects, gain that experience, which has been very valuable. I've been able to manage a team of uh, students and postdocs and uh, research scientists and research associates. I've, uh, you know, with my own funding, been able to gain experience in uh, managing funding and then also uh, managing a research lab, which is very valuable as well. You know, I think it's been a great opportunity to prepare me as I make this transition to a tenure track role. So, you know, I was thinking about the kind of advice I could give at my level that could be valuable to uh, the folks participating today. And, you know, I was really thinking, are there three kind of things that I'd want to talk about? Uh, but really, when I thought more deeply about it, they all really fall under the same umbrella. And it's uh, similar to what Nancy was saying, that uh, relationships are very important. Um, and they're important, clearly, at all stages of your career. So I think the three kinds of relationships that I thought about were uh, mentorship, and I'm sure you'll hear this from other folks on the panel and probably other folks you've heard in these kinds of settings before, how valuable it is to have a mentor that really believes in you, that supports you, and that can help uh, guide you as you try to move forward in your career, both scientifically to provide feedback on uh, your research projects and research questions and, and uh, pursuing funding opportunities, but particularly on uh, your career and, and how to move forward in your career, and to help uh, make the right connections with other individuals that can help you move forward. Second, you know, relationship-wise are collaborations. So uh, this day and age, it's impossible to be an expert in everything. In fact, it's impossible to be an expert in even a few things. So you really need to have you know, relationships with uh, other scientists and other individuals that can help contribute to your research. You know, you want to make those connections with people, not by thinking about how can somebody help you, but how can you help them. And I think when you have that kind of relationship and that kind of collaboration with somebody, you have a much more valuable relationship, like Nancy was saying, as opposed to you know, just meeting somebody uh, after a seminar and introducing yourself to actually work with somebody day to day or you know, weekly or monthly is a much more valuable kind of relationship than you would have uh, just by introducing yourself at, at a meeting. And then third, the relationships with the people that work for you and work around you. You know, I'm sure this is true for other people, but I um, much prefer to go to work when I feel like I'm working around other individuals that are also very excited about the work that they're doing. They're motivated, they're smart, they're hardworking, and that motivates me. So I think it's important to surround yourself um, with individuals that you know, show that kind of work ethic and interest in the work that they do. So as you try to recruit uh, students and uh, postdocs, staff to, to work with you and to work around you to recruit individuals that help to build that kind of culture. My name is Fernando Pardo Manuel de Villena. Uh, I'm in between, I'm closer to Nancy, actually, career-wise, than to Mary. Uh, I'm a professor, I'm the chair of the Department of Genetics in the School of Medicine at UNC. I have an unusual background, I was talking with John, 
Uh, I'm mostly French. I have a very long Spanish name. And I'm three-quarters French, one-quarter Spaniard. I came for a postdoc for a year uh, at Temple University in Pennsylvania 25 years ago with the idea of going back to Europe and doing science in Europe. And I have stayed here for 25 years. So, uh, and, and this is going to be part of my advice. There is places where you fit, and that is as important in your, for your career as your excellence in science. I am assuming that all of you are the experts in your fields. You are the news hot thing that is going to move science forward. We know that. Uh, but part of your career development is going to be find a place where you can be as good and where your potential can be realized. And that is not necessarily the same place for everybody. Fitting in the culture of your department, your institute, your center, your university is really important. You need to be aligned with that culture. Uh, and it has to be both ways. You need to, to make sure that your bosses, your, the people that supervise you, the people that are going to give you tenure or get you promotion, value the research that you do. Uh, if they don't, you are not in the right place. Move somewhere else. On the other hand, you also need to value the culture of those places. Duke has a different culture than UNC. We get along much better than what people think. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, within UNC, the Department of, of Genetics has a very different culture than the Department of Cell Biology. Uh, so, and that is driven in part by the people that are in leadership position and by the colleagues. So be sure that you ask questions uh, because if you don't ask questions, you don't know. And some of these questions may be a little probing and they seem a little irrelevant because you're not talking about your paper in nature and in cell, but they are going to be as important. Um, meaning you want your, the person that recruits you uh, having skin on the game, that your success is their success. If they don't do that, uh, if that person is going to move, <coughs> you are just leaving, you're leaving money on the table. You don't want to do that. Uh, some places <coughs> may have better resources, but different cultures. So think about that really in every step of your careers. But at the very beginning, it's hard to ask those questions. It's hard to think. It's hard to think about a profession because you are so excited about your own science that you don't think about careers. And, and I think that we, I mean, we, the senior people, need to do better to make sure that we pay attention to this kind of, uh, of, of issues. So if you have a chair and you're in a tenure track position, make sure that your chair is there for these five, six, seven years that it's going to take you to get tenure. Um, that, that will ensure that that person is the person that recruits you, is the person that actually wants you to succeed. So that's my first piece of advice. The second piece of advice, I think that I'm going to keep insisting on what Nancy and what Mary were saying. Uh, but I'm going to take a slightly different task. There is nobody that can do team science, interdisciplinary research today without having colleagues. And those colleagues, as far as, the, as they are from your own field, probably the most successful, the most groundbreaking your science is going to be. And you need to choose people that they are going to be good at their field. But you need to do, choose people that you trust. And trust is key for relationship in science. You are going to be junior, and the question is, can you trust somebody that is a full professor or a member of the National Academy of Science? Is that person going to take advantage of you? I mean, you need to make sure that when you do that, and that type of conversations, uh, uh, I have it with all my, my, my faculty, my junior faculty that I mentor, say, ask questions. Uh, do not be, be say, when you are starting a collaboration, make sure that you understand who is paying for what, how, credit is going to be given for success. And that if you think that you are not okay, it's okay to walk away. 
I mean, there is no reason, there is plenty of, of, um, of experts in the world. And as an as a addendum to this is, uh, and that has been my personal experience, I think that imposter syndrome is something that we should, all science, to have a little. We should doubt ourselves. It's, it's a good thing. Um, if it goes to the extreme, it's not. Um, on the other hand, remember that the people that you look up, the Nobel Prize winners, the members of the National Academy of Science, the leaders of your institution, are not that much better than you are. You can go and approach them. You can actually talk to them. They have probably the same subtops that you do. And if they don't, they should. My name is Rashid Badigeshi. I'm a professor of pediatrics at Duke. And I'm a pediatric nephrologist, and I work on you know, molecular pathogenesis of um, a kidney disease called you know, nephrotic syndrome. I came to Duke about 10 years ago. I think that's just around when Dean... Uh, Andrews and was just starting a tenure. And one of the first things that, that was very challenging to me was actually moving from University of Michigan to Duke because I, I worked as a postdoc in a lab. I really enjoyed, you know, working there. And I, you know, for, you know, for that time, and, you know, I was very productive, and I had no doubt in my, in my mind that I should be able to have, you know, some kind of, you know, career in science, okay? So, got all the offers in Michigan, and then um, I just got a call from my immediate past um, division director who just said, um, would you mind coming over to come and have a look? So, I came to Duke, uh, look around, and in talking to people that you work with, you know, significant others, people in social circles, is actually very, very important in terms of, you know, making decisions. And one of the things was, you know, when I talked to people that, okay, I'm going to Duke to look at things, and they said, why are, you look, why are you leaving certainty for uncertainty? Who do you know at Duke? Okay? So I came to Duke, and, um, you know, very smart set up when you come for interview at Duke, people actually know how to set you up to the extent that, you know, you get there and you see, this is actually where I want to be. And that's actually what worked for me. What actually, what actually informed my decision, you know, moving to Duke is actually the atmosphere, exactly what people were telling me that, oh, you know, it's highly competitive. So I got there, you know, highly competitive, compact uh, institution and people are actually very approachable. But the second most important thing that actually clicked it for me was mentoring. So I got to Duke and actually found a mentor that is doing exactly something very similar to what I'm doing, who is actually very, very accommodating, despite the fact that we were actually not in the same department. In fact, for the first five years of my career at Duke, people actually thought that my primary department was internal medicine. Yeah, it took a while for people to know that my primary department was actually, you know, the department of pediatrics. So choosing a mentor is actually very, very important. I do not measure mentorship by... Um, it's very important that you want to associate with, you know, very, very successful people, people who have the track record, no doubt about that. But actually, one of the things that I find the most important is actually... And having a mentor that is approachable, someone that you can sit down with and say, this is the problem. Someone that is actually going to be outrightly honest with you. Look, you're not doing this right. Why don't you, why don't you uh, do it this way? 
So mentoring is actually very, very important. The other thing that people have actually talked about is collaboration and trying to establish collaboration. It doesn't work like, oh, you know, I listen to this person, you know, walk up to the person and shake. No, it's, it's much more deeper than that. You need to identify people that are actually working in the same space with you, find someone, you know, someone to introduce you to the person, and that's why you need both a mentor and a sponsor in terms of actually trying to get to know people that are within your space. So that's actually uh, very, very important too. And the other thing that is important is, you know, we've had all the formal training, we've done all these fantastic postdocs, we have our cell paper, we have our, you know, nature genetics paper. You move into an institution, you do not exist in a silo. You have to look at the institution broadly. And that actually differs between, um, between institutions. So I was talking to I did not know up until yesterday when Dwight told me that actually UT Southwestern do not have, uh, it's not an undergraduate university. That was my first time of actually, you know, hearing about that. So your colleagues in chemistry, your colleagues in, you know, um, Trinity School at Duke, everyone, you just have to look around, talk to people from that, you know, community of scientists, you know, peers, that's actually very, very important. The other thing that is very important, especially when you have um, someone like you know, Dean Andrews as your dean, is that you have to be on the lookout because Dean Andrews probably, in terms of you know, initiatives at Duke, it's, like you just, it's just difficult to, to keep pace. You know, different initiatives seems to, you know, seems to come up. You have these, uh, you have uh, people who discuss things. Eh? Here are the barriers. Eh? What can we use to solve the problem? Next initiative, eh? let's try this way, see whether it's going to work or not. So you have to be on the lookout for things that are available. And I'll give you uh, one very good example. So after my training in the labs, the only other formal training that I have, in addition, you know, apart from just interacting with my fellow, the only other training that I have in terms of managing a research group, manage, managing a lab group, was actually an in initiative that was started by uh, Dean Andrews uh, called the Leader Program at Duke. So essentially what Leader Program means is that you get young and up-and-coming investigators together and you actually mix them together with you know, very senior colleagues and you know, teach them that this is the way in which you run a research group. It's a, I, I think it's a seven days um, program at Duke. That is actually what is forming the fundamentals of the way in which I'm running my research group up till now. That was where I learned that, and that's actually very useful for, for you know, what I'm doing now. That's where I learned that if the fact that you are not physically present in the lab doesn't really mean that you shouldn't know what is going on. There is a way by which you establish communication with people working with you. Everybody has, you know, different styles. My style is all the people that are working with me, research technician, postdoc, you know, junior faculty, we exchange emails at the end of the week. This is what we've done. All right, this is what we've done. This is what we've accomplished. This is what is going next. And I call it Sunday evening email. And then Sunday, you know, after lunch on Sunday, I reply to those emails, and then we set the agenda for the week. So even if I'm not there, I know that things are actually going on. So those are some of the things that I, you know, word of wisdom, I don't think I'm very wise, but those are some of the things that work for me.
At this point in the program, Dr. Burris opened the floor for questions. The first questioner asked the panelists to describe one mistake they had made in establishing a lab. It's sort of a, not a single mistake, but, but maybe something that I was approaching wrong in the beginning. I think, and I say this with a little bit of hesitation because you have to find your, your place within the range from not doing this at all to doing it a lot, but, and resources matter. But I think when I first started, I was uh, not as brave about trying new things as I might be. I, you know, it was easy to stick with the things I knew. And I began to realize after a few years, fortunately only two or three years, um, that I didn't have to be limited by what I already knew how to do. And so around the second or third year after I started my lab, we focused on a problem that we wanted to solve. At that point, my, my field is iron biology, and at that point, no one knew anything about how iron got into and out of mammalian cells. And we wanted to solve that problem, but a lot of people were trying to solve it with difficulty because it, it was, a, at the time, a tough problem. And we realized that genetics, mouse genetics in particular, could give us a handle that, that would help us solve the problem, and ultimately it did. But I went from never having had a genetics course in my life, never having done anything except scream when I saw a mouse, to, <laughs> to becoming a, a mouse lab and, and using mouse genetics to solve that problem. And it was a great lesson for me not to be afraid. I, I think you need to be adventurous in your science if you're going to have all of the tools possible to solve big problems. And it's important, in my view, to to choose problems that are, are important. And so I, I should have been more adventurous in the beginning, but uh, fortunately, I think, figured it out. Hard to think of just one. <laughs> and obviously, I'm still learning at this stage of my career, so I'm sure there are some that I've made I've yet to discover. But perhaps along the lines of um, funding, maybe I'll say, um, I think maybe being afraid to spend money has been a mistake of mine. You know, obviously you want to be as conservative as you can. It looks much better on paper to be very productive with a, a few amount of resources. Um, and certainly you, you, know, you want to save, you don't want to spend on things that you don't need. But sometimes uh, you need to make an investment that's a little scary to get things uh, off the ground. Sometimes you need to uh, make a risky decision to um, to have a big payoff. And so I think, you know, as you're looking at funding, uh, wanting to conserve, wanting to make sure that you can support yourself and to support your staff and to support the research, uh, just make sure you're not too conservative in that. You know, you, sometimes you do need to spend money to get the best outcome. I'm going to keep saying the same thing. The basic biggest mistake is I mean, I, I disagree with Mary. Spend all your money the first year. I mean, <laughs> it's actually, if I actually came, I got two funded projects within three months that I arrived, and therefore I didn't need to use my startup. And because I didn't need to use my startup, my, my view was I would keep it for a rainy day, so it's like a safety fund. That's wrong. Spend it. And I meaning don't spend it in things that they are not relevant, but actually, I mean, spend it in crazy ideas and think that they are going to change the field. 
this is the moment that you have the liberty to do that, and you have the money, do it. I mean, that's my first advice. And the second thing, ask questions. We expect that somebody's going to tell us the, I don't know, how to do, deal with HR, to hire your first technician, or deal with, with the animal protocol when you arrive to an institution. I mean, and there is this sense, because all you, you are very bright, that you should know these things, but you don't. And just ask questions and just be insistent. Ask questions and don't let people leave without giving you the answer. And senior people uh, know the ways around because they don't go through the same challenge that you do. So ask senior people how they hire a person in a week instead of three months that it would take to everybody else to do it. I've made you know, many mistakes, but I would just uh, focus on uh, a couple now. So the first thing is actually having tunnel vision, uh, saying that this is what I'm doing, and this is the only thing that I'm going to be doing, okay? Uh, we have to be very, very creative, and creative could mean, you know, opportunities do come up, and you just have to, you just have to take that opportunity. So this is, um, the, this is the big example <laughs> from me. So when I started at Duke, um, so my, my uh, late mentor, Michelle Nguyen, uh, she actually worked on, you know, familial kidney disease, and that was what, you know, I was doing too. Then an opportunity came up, the Doris Duke uh, Career Development Award, and I just looked at it, and I was basically writing a grant just, you know, to be in line with what we were doing generally in the lab. And what she said is, she looked at me like this, and she said, well, you know, that's all well and good. You know, we have the preliminary data, everything is good and whatever. But the problem with that is that how are you going to differentiate yourself from me in another couple of years? So, really? So, so I looked at it and so she said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm an internist, you know, nephrologist. You know, you are a pediatric nephrologist. There are definitely some things, some bony question in pediatric nephrology that you may actually be, f be able to focus on primarily. And that actually made me, you know, thinking that, oh, my God. By that time, I had my, I think I've just submitted my K, got a very promising score. So I discussed with her and everything. I said, well, that one thing that, that you know, we do genomic research, and, but the trend now is that people are actually talking about, you know, population Genetics and the problem is that I do not have any skill on how to do population genetics, how to put together a cohort, how to how to uh, collaborate with people. He said, yeah, then go and learn it. And it turned out that I got two career two career development awards within the same the same year. That second career development award, where she was telling me that you need to to broaden your horizon, eh? that's actually what is most of the things that I do now in terms of research eh, actually stem from the data that I actually gathered from that second career development award. So you need to, um, to you know, continue to do your work. You have to be very, very enthusiastic about it. And when something is staring you in the face like this, eh, this is a question, eh, this is a question, and eh, do we have an answer to this? There's no answer to, to, to it. There's an RFA that is attend that is, um, that is actually focusing on that. It's not necessarily the little area that you're working in, but it's tangentially related to it. Eh? Take up the challenge. You know, educate yourself about it. Find people who actually have you know, more knowledge than, than you. 
collaborate with people and put things together. That may actually be your career ultimately. Another questioner asked the panelists to comment on what traits they look for when hiring for their labs and what traits they avoid. In terms of, you know, hiring people, the thing that I look for, the trait that I look for is I want a team player. So you have to be a team player. You have to show it to me within the 30, 40 minutes that I'm going to interview you that you're going to be trustworthy and you are going to play within a team. Once I can establish that, I mean, let's face it, most of the people that come across, you know, major, I mean, there's some bad ones. Eh? Majority, you know, have, you know, average intelligence. So what you actually need is actually to get someone who is trustworthy and somebody who can play within a team. So those are the two big things that I look for. And of course, the person must be enthusiastic about my science. Yeah, I would second that and say the soft skills are much more important than expertise in a particular area. It's much easier to teach somebody um, you know, the science that you're working on than it is to teach them the soft skills. Um, and certainly, you know, they can teach themselves the science, get familiar with the literature, attend seminars, et cetera. But you, it's, it's very difficult to teach somebody to be enthusiastic, to be trustworthy, to be hardworking, to be a team player. So looking for those soft skills is really important. But actually, um, one bit of advice I got from sitting in your seat in this panel last year was an individual on the panel who said that, and I will agree with this, that... Um, even when you do uh, the most vetting you can in looking for a candidate, you know, you uh, look for a good CV, you have recommendations, you speak to people that the candidate has worked with and they give great references, you still end up with about 25% of people that are great, which is wonderful, 50% of people that are somewhere in the middle, and then 25% of people that just don't cut it. You know, and it's it's very difficult process. It's so difficult just from paper and from interviews and from references to know who's going to fall into what category. So I would say, you know, don't beat yourself up when that happens. You get somebody that isn't a great fit. And it may not be that they're not a great fit because they're not a great person. They just might not be a great fit for the culture of your lab. But don't let that linger, you know. If there's something you can do to fix it, have weekly or a monthly you know, performance discussions and something you can do to fix that, that's great. If not, I'd say it's better to end those relationships. Don't let them linger because they'll disappoint you both. They won't be beneficial for either side. An audience member said that apparently there is a statistic showing that only a small fraction of individual PIs who have successfully obtained their first R01 managed to obtain the second R01. So there is a huge problem of retention, and a lot of PIs fail at some point in the pipeline. He asked the panelists if they've seen any traits or behaviors that contribute to this failure to obtain a second R01. That kind of aggregate data is uh, a little bit deceptive, and there are a lot of faculty members across the country who get one R01, and that is for them a big milestone, and their institution loves it, and, and they've made it. I suspect that those of you in this room are, are going to be in a different cohort from that, that aggregate group. I, I, not that it's necessarily easy to get your second or, or other subsequent grants, but 
there's a, a very large cross-section of people who get one R01. There's also a large cross-section of people who apply and never get an R01. But I think that if, you know, if you continue on the trajectories that have brought you here, I don't think that's going to be your worry. I mean, I, I grew up in a city where during the summer I would work at the university in the biology department, and it was a huge deal if a faculty member at that university ever got an R01. And so it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that you guys are kind of in a more elite part of that aggregate. And so I, I would be very surprised unless you change your career plans if if that is a big problem for you guys long-term. I, I completely agree with Nancy. You guys are not really part of that statistics, but as as an as a administrator in a department, I, I worry about who I, I'm hiring, and I worry about the three groups. The, the junior people, are they going to be able to get their R1 and make it to tenure? I'm concerned, and this is a real concern in the country, is the founding of the mid-career but um, I'm going to say my experience as a chair of a department, and a department that started, I was the second hire in that department. So 18 years ago, UNC didn't have a department of genetics. I was hired by Terry Magnuson to come here. Terry Magnuson moved to be the chair. Now he's the vice chancellor of the university. I have done my entire career here. Uh, so what I have learned is two things. Um, we have never had somebody not get tenure in the department. So we have 100% success rate. And we are, we are good in hiring, but we are not that good in hiring. So what means is actually the culture of the place. I mean, you do, you are driven by what you see around you. So you may not be thinking of getting a second R01 of working somebody P50 or the U19, but if that culture around is to do that, you will. And you, that will be a natural part of things. The mid-career, I am not having too many problems. My, my real worry is when departments, my department is 18 years old, we are getting old. Um, uh, we are going to have a lot of full professors. And people that have done the same thing for 25 years like me um, are at the end of their careers. You need to reinvent yourself. You need to change. You need to assume that there is other things to do that the little problem or big problem that you were addressing. And people that are not able to do that are just saying, I am willing to... to explore something else. I'm not going to say Lehood problem that if you don't solve a problem in 10 years, you are failing and you should move to something else. But something like that, meaning you reinvent yourself and that's part of the problem of the career development. So don't worry too much about tenure. Don't worry too much about my career. I would be more worried about what's going to happen to you 40 years from now when you are <laughs> old and distinguished professor. Actually, could I just add one more thing? That I think that's a really good point. To turn your question around, what makes somebody successful getting the second R01? I, I think it's really, really important, and I did this for every grant I ever applied for, to have other people read it and people who will be critical and will tell you, you know, this doesn't make sense to somebody who is slightly outside your field or you forgot about the possibility that, X might happen instead of Y. And, and so I think that it helps a lot to take advantage of the, the generosity of your colleagues and mentors to help you not only learn how to write grants, but, but help you put your best grant forward throughout your career. There is a group of people in the institution that are particularly important to you, and you should be know them. Uh, you should know them now. And if you don't, uh, go and ask the leadership who are the study section members 
of all the study section in your institution. And if you have study section members of the, of the study section that your grants go, go and talk to them. Um, the grants can be great science, but there is grantmanship and there is tradition with study section. I'm a member of study section, and I can tell you there are grants that they just don't belong there. They may be great, but they are going to score horribly because they don't fill the niche that that study section does. And that is something that is, you cannot ask them how to score your grant, but you can ask them what they need, to, what you need to do to belong in that group. So it's part of the, of the networking. You need to do that because you are going to depend uh, for the success. And I have one faculty member in my department that has never failed to get a grant funded. I mean, 100%, I mean, he's extremely successful, extremely senior, and the way is he has been always to go to the same study section, and he basically ran that study section without being there. So, ask. I agree entirely with uh, what um, the uh, panelists have actually talked about along uh, this line. Um, the, you know, getting the first arrow one, it's a big landmark, you know, in this business. There's no doubt about that. So we're talking about metrics yesterday. That's, you know, the metrics, you know, to say that, okay, you're going to become, oh, you're, you're an um, established you know, independent investigator. The way in which I look at that is that as you're going along the way, you should be thinking about innovative and creative way by which what is don't just look at that you know, five-year period. How is, the, how is this question, how is this field going to evolve in the next you know, five to 10 years? And uh, when you are thinking along that line and you're working along that line, that is, that's, that's, a, that's actually um, a way of you know, projecting. You know, so you don't have, you, you need to have a big plan. You know, like he was saying that, you know, spend all the money in the first year. You, know, you need to have... Um, a big plans in. So that is actually very, very important. The um, other thing is that there is no set time limit. for. So you got, you got the first arrow one. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to be two, three years into the first arrow one before you start thinking about the second arrow one. As far as I'm concerned, you are ready to, to write the second arrow one once you have a compelling prelim data. You have a compelling prelim data. It's something new. It's something innovative. Eh? Go for it. The next questioner said that one of the things he had heard a lot at the meeting was the importance of being open to new ideas and being willing to broaden your focus. He noted that one of the pieces of advice he got a lot was to remain focused and not be distracted from his primary mission. He said that he could manage that kind of at a distance, but he understood that both concepts have to coexist for success. He asked the panelists to comment on times when they felt that they really had to stay the course and stand by their ideas. He asked, when is the right time to be open and when is the right time to fit in? I think it's true that the focus is really important, and, and that's something that probably invariably institutions or departments will look for as you're applying for jobs, to know that you have an area that you're going to accomplish something in, and, and focus is a good sign of that. A couple of thoughts. One is that even being very focused, you can still let your mind wander, and I know every time I go to a seminar, no matter what it's about, or almost every time, I get an idea relevant to my own work. And, you know, it could be something 
completely far afield, but it, it makes me think about my work in a different way. And so in that sense, I've got the focus, but, but I can let my imagination wander as I learn about new things. But then you can have focus in more than one area in the same time. And when I started out, my focus project was continuing what I had done as a postdoc, and my ultimately adventurous project was something completely different from what I had done as a postdoc. And, and they were related in, in a way, but I was very focused on both of those, but, but there was more than one area of focus. You probably don't want too many starting out, but you could categorize them as sort of a bread and butter uh, project and a high risk, high yield project, or, but they don't have to be that way, but, but that's one way to think about it. And that's probably what it was for me, and the high risk, high yield one paid off and ended up being an awful lot more fun than the, the bread and butter one. I'm not sure I can comment too much on uh, research focus. I'm not great at this myself. I get uh, very excited about new opportunities, and I have a lot of projects in very diverse areas, and I'm frequently told that I need to be more focused in one particular area. But in terms of um, responsibilities and you know how to decide what to focus on and what's going to be most valuable in your career, I think this goes back to mentorship. Anytime I get a request to do anything service-wise, committee-wise, um, uh, journal-wise, you know, it, I always run it by my mentor. And they're very helpful in deciding uh, what's going to be valuable to you, what's worth your time versus, you know, something that will consume your time but probably won't pay off. So I would say, you know, having that mentor to help you make those decisions at an early stage in your career is very important. Another audience member asked the panelists how often they changed directions, and whether it was because they had a postdoc or a graduate student who looked at things in different ways that made them take up a different question. I'm a biologist. I'm a geneticist. Uh, half of my students are computer scientists. They are in the college. Um, they speak a language that I barely understand. <laughs> and I have been doing that for 15 years, and how it happens is that I... I needed, I was doing something completely different. I was starting a, a completely different project that it was a big thing. And I needed, I knew that I was going to need computer science help um, in doing that. So for two years, me and my a select group of my students, not all of them, we forced ourselves to sit down in a, a lab meeting with a group of computer scientists and their students. And for the first two years, for the first year it was really, really, really painful because we didn't know what we were talking about. And it was, the second year would get better. Um, now, um, 13 years later, I have 10 students that have a commentary. Uh, one of them is, most of them have been extremely successful. Computer science students rarely go to academia because Google or Amazon. Yeah. So one of them is coming tomorrow. She works at Google and she's offering the grad students at UNC. Um, to just quit your PhD, that's not worth it. I will give you half a million dollars, and you will. So uh, they are extremely successful, but that relationship was driven by a need, but without the students, it would not have happened. Because, um, I mean, my collaborators in the NIH grant that we have been funded for 15 years together in different grants, computer science, we talk through the students still today. The students are the person that actually acts as a link. They are much more flexible that we are, and they can talk to each other in a much better way. So I think that, yes, um, both ways. 
I'm going to take a slightly different take on that and, and um, two thoughts. One is the way I got into iron originally was because there was a medical student who had a deep interest in it, which has got to be a pretty rare thing, or at least was back then. And there was nobody around who was working in that area, and he just nagged me until eventually I got into it, which turned out to be terrific. But the other thought is that most of the time, occasionally there were trainees in the lab who would drive us in one direction or another, but more often it wasn't that they came in with an idea they wanted to pursue it's that they did something, and every time I had a postdoc leave the lab, I just got out of whatever aspect of iron they were working on. It's a huge field. There was tons to do. And as soon as someone developed their expertise and their, their project in, in a particular part of the field, when they left to go start their own research, I just started working on some other aspect of it. And so in that way, they, they kind of drove it in a different way. So for me, it's not um, necessarily you know, just uh, changing direction because the young people that I'm working with in the lab, you know, this is what they're interested in. Most of the time, what happened to me when I veer off a little bit is actually uh, you know, the younger ones you know, coming to me and saying, yeah, you know, this is what, I know this is what you do, this is what you're interested in, um, I want to do this. It's, really, it's not exactly what you are doing, but you know, it's a little bit related to it. You know, can you? Can we just look at it together? Even, even if I don't have expertise there, I'll sit down with them. You know, look at the things together, um, try and find someone that has expertise on it. You know, do some readings around it, and actually put things together. And most of the time, when I'm putting it together, is that okay? What's pretty much what is going to happen is that. You know, I'm creating a project, and you know that you're going to do that. You know, you're going to create your own niche with that. So, some of the things that I have to do off, you know, tangent from you know what I'm doing now. That's actually how that do happen. Dr. Burris then asked the panelists to share any last thoughts or take-home messages. I am going to take one thing that Nancy said. It's going to be further in your in your career path, but I, I hope that that you think about it and you do what uh, Nancy did. Uh, I mean, part of your of science, if you are not alone, you're building upon <laughs> other people's research, you're part of a, of a, of a pedigree. You're train, your mentor, and you are going to have trainees, and that part of science is really important. Being generous in that part of science is key. Um, I mean, Nancy is right. When people come to your lab and they leave, do not compete with them. Because hopefully your bosses are not, your mentors are not competing with you. You need to leave people room to, to grow. And it's really sad when you see people competing with their former mentors that just get their job. And you are in study section and you have basically the postdoc work um, uh, and their bosses side by side. And they are exactly the same grant. Please think about that. Um, uh, and think about that in a career part. So when you are now at the beginning and you are going to hire a postdoc, if that postdoc needs to leave, wants to leave the lab in two years, you need to think at how that makes you look with respect to your R01. Uh, so it's, uh, you need to think when are you ready to get let go things. Grad students don't take projects with them typically, but postdocs need to if they are going to have a career in science. So uh, think about it and be generous um, if you want to be successful. One other way in which um, I look at it is that um, we have... All of us, we have our big, you know, pet project that 
this is something that I'm very passionate about. I've been doing this. This is, you know, I've gotten, you know, this big grant with this. It turned out that most of those things, uh, they're usually medium to long-term stuff, you know, that you are working on. It doesn't mean that, you know, because you are working on that, it's like, okay, I don't want to think about something else. You, it's like you're just, you're just trying to build, build a career. You're trying to, you know, to, to build yourself. There are some small, small, you know, side projects eh, that actually gives you more fulfillment eh, than, you know, the big thing that you're looking at. And I've had this from, you know, very, very successful investigator. Bob Lefkowitz will tell you that some of the things that actually give him the fulfillment are actually some of the, you know, tangential projects that he does and then, you know, just look at it and say, oh, wow, look at what this actually led to. So the most important thing is that, yes, you will have your very big picture, the long-term things that you're doing, but at the same time, there are just, this is, after all, let's look at it, uh, serendipity is, you know, big thing in science. You may be looking at things, you know, in this direction, uh, and then you keep getting all these um, results, and, you know, it's negative results, you know, you're frustrated about it, uh, Actually, you can generate an hypothesis from a negative result and actually say, maybe, maybe I'm actually approaching it in the wrong, in the wrong direction. So it's always nice to keep a very, very open mind when, you know, moving forward. I agree. I, I think some of the unexpected results turned into the biggest deal for us. I just want to sort of pick up on what Fernando just said. Whenever I interviewed a potential student or postdoc or, or also technicians most of the time for the lab, I asked myself, is this someone whose career I'm going to care about you know, for the rest of the time that, that I know them? And I've always gone into it thinking about it as a long-term relationship. You know, That's my student, not just for the time that he or she is in the lab, but for the rest of their career. And I, I think really caring about the people that you have working with you is important, and if you interview someone and you think, you know, there's no way I'm going to want that person to be mine forever, it's probably not the right person. Well, this is uh, really expert advice here, so I will let them take the serious stuff, and I'll just say, enjoy it. You know, don't forget <laughs> that um, in order to be extremely successful, you have to love what you do, so don't forget to enjoy the big things and the little things, celebrate your successes, celebrate the successes of the people that work for you, have fun in the lab, you know, and, and make sure you're working on something that you really enjoy. With that, Dr. Burris concluded the session, thanking the audience members for their participation and the panelists for sharing their wisdom so generously. We hope you've enjoyed this special edition of the Focus in Sound podcast. Until next time, this is Ernie Hood. Thanks for listening. <laughs>